You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Ronald Klain, President-elect Joe Biden's White House Chief of Staff, joins the Post to lay out the goals of the new administration. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and I want to thank you for joining us today for our conversation with Ron Klain, who as of next Wednesday at noon will be Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Ron, thank you so much for being with us at what is an extremely busy time for you. Well, thanks for having me, Karen. Happy to join you for this conversation. So last night, President-elect Biden unveiled a massive $1.9 trillion package of emergency relief. And he spoke of the, the need to move with urgency and bipartisanship. But the day before that, the House of Representatives had impeached Donald Trump for the second time. And the Senate trial is going to take place after Joe Biden is already in office, if it takes place. How is it really realistic to expect that something as politically charged as an impeachment trial can take place in the Senate without jeopardizing the kind of bipartisanship that President-elect Biden says he needs to get this thing through? Well, Karen, I do think it is realistic. I mean, look, the issues the president-elect talked about, the need to accelerate our vaccination program, the need to get schools back open, trying to get more than half of the schools in the country back open by the end of his first 100 days, the need to extend unemployment benefits to people who've lost their jobs because of this pandemic, uh, the need to ramp up our response to the pandemic more generally, and of course, to finish the job on getting those $2,000 checks to people who are really struggling. Uh, and much more. Those needs, those don't divide along party lines. There aren't just uh, Democratic uh, people who can't get vaccines. There aren't just Democratic kids who are out of schools. There aren't just Democratic families who are suffering from this economic crisis. Uh, These are problems that cross party lines. And so I think the message that the president-elect had last night was that we face twin crises in this country, a public health crisis from COVID, an economic crisis that the COVID crisis has produced. And we all need to work together to solve that. Look, just before Christmas, Democrats and Republicans came together and passed $900 billion in emergency aid as a down payment on these needs. There's no reason why they can't do the same thing now uh, with uh, really finishing the job on these critical COVID and economic uh, challenges. But could you think they can do that simultaneously with an impeachment trial or, or should, you know, one or the other take precedence here in terms of what should be dealt with first. Yeah, I I think they are gonna have to work on both simultaneously, Karen. Obviously, there'll have to be committee work on this proposal that the president-elect put forward uh, that can obviously go on while an impeachment trial is going on. There will be uh, floor time uh, outside of the impeachment trial, and hopefully the trial will not be a lengthy trial. Uh, The Senate has its responsibilities under the Constitution. I haven't heard any member suggests uh, some way of getting out of, or that they should get out of those constitutional responsibilities, to be clear. They also have a responsibility to the country to address these twin crises. Uh, I think they can do both. We're going to work closely with them to see how they can do both. Uh, And of course, now that the House uh, has discharged its constitutional duty, it also can get to work on this uh, emergency COVID rescue package. Okay, so 
Ron, let's talk about this package. It's $1.9 trillion. That's more than twice as big as the package that, that passed around Christmas. And just in the broadest strokes, tell me if I'm getting this wrong here, about half of it goes to aid to struggling families and individuals, whether it is through the $1,400 checks or you know more generous unemployment benefits, um, tax breaks, then the remainder is divided between dealing with the COVID epidemic, including getting to President-elect Biden's goal of 100 million vaccinations in his first 100 days, and also reopening school. And then the remainder goes state to aid to states, cities, businesses. I've got all this right? Okay. Uh, that's, that's a very good summary, Karen. Thank you. So how did your team go about deciding how big this should be and how the resources, which are going to have to be financed by making the deficit bigger, how they should be divided among these three primary areas? Well, you know, Karen, as, uh, as, as we've conducted kind of in public, the president-elect has been listening to people since he got elected president. He's met with mayors and governors in both parties. He's met with uh, business leaders from both parties, uh, leaders from organized labor, community leaders, so on and so forth. And of course, a lot of meetings with his COVID task force uh, and its scientific uh, and execution experts. And I think the putting of this package together began with the, the last part of that, making sure that we were putting onto the field all the pieces we needed to bend the curve on this epidemic and to try to get the meet the vaccination target of 100 million shots in 100 days, get schools open, get businesses the help they need, deal with all those things to try to get this virus under control, make progress on it, certainly in the first 100 days. So that was the way that was put together. Our consultations with mayors and governors, again, of both political parties from large states, small states, uh, states all over the country was that we're hearing about teachers being laid off, we're hearing about uh, localities being struggling to keep their firefighters on the job, law enforcement on the job, other critical people they need, just as a time when we need more first responders to help administer these vaccinations and keep our country moving forward. So that's where the ideas for those state and local relief uh, came from. And then the individual relief, you know, the president-elect uh, heard from a lot of people during the course of the campaign. We looked carefully at where these programs were. Let's just take one example, the unemployment uh, supplemental program that Congress passed in December, uh, which got people through Christmas. It runs out in March. If Congress doesn't act before March, people who lost jobs through no fault of their own because of this pandemic will be left without benefits. Uh, those need to be extended beyond March. And of course, there seems to be broad bipartisan support and a big election in Georgia ratifying the need for these, uh, finishing the job on the $2,000 survival check. So I think the pieces were put together carefully. It's a big number, there's no question about it. But we have two big crises in this country. And I have to say, we've spent the past year largely underdoing the response. We haven't fully funded the COVID response, and we're gonna see 500,000 deaths in this country sometime next month. We haven't fully funded the economic response, and as a result, about one in nine Americans, one in 10 Americans, is either officially unemployed or is stuck at home, unable to work because their children are out of school. And so we have these related crises. It's gonna take a big answer to address those crises, and that's what the president-elect uh, laid out last night. 
So what is the greater danger at this very precarious moment in which we find ourselves? Is it going too big or not going big enough? Well, you know, Karen, I think the greater danger is not going big enough. I mean, we've been uh, prudent and responsible in designing this package. And I don't want anyone to suggest there are things in there that aren't needed. We, we, we chose carefully, we weighed and measured everything and, um, and put it together. But the package has been called bold uh, and it is bold. And I, again, from my experience handling the Ebola response in West Africa, what I learned very clearly is that if you don't get in front of one of these epidemics, it takes over. And that's what we've seen over the past year. Uh, almost a year ago, the president of the United States, Donald Trump promised anyone in America who wanted a test could get one. And we didn't invest in testing and that promise has never been kept. And the result of not getting on top of this virus early is the calamity we have experienced in the months since then. And so uh, we do have a robust response in that package for the virus. We do have the funding and it is expensive to vaccinate uh, to give 100 million shots in 100 days. And it is going to cost a lot of money to get our schools reopened safely. But the cost of not doing those things is far higher. And what the economists tell us is that if we make these investments, we actually can reduce the deficit because we're gonna avoid an economic and a public health calamity, which will push the deficit out of control. Look, if you are a person who says deficits matter, you have to look at the policies of the past year and you've seen what's happened to our economy, what's happened to our country has played a big part in our deficit soaring. So taking bold action now, making these investments will actually be good for the nation's physical health, good for the nation's economic health, and in the long run, yes, also good for the nation's fiscal health. So Ron, you mentioned your experience with the uh, Ebola epidemic in 2014. Before that, when you were Chief of Staff for Vice President Joe Biden, you also managed the response and implementation of the recovery program in the very first year of President Obama's presidency to deal with the 2008 financial collapse. Can you talk a little bit about what both of those experiences, both the, you know, the things that were done right, but also the mistakes that were made that are kind of informing you now as we approach something that seems to combine the, the elements of both of them. I, I think it's a great point, Karen. I mean, I think obviously COVID is different from Ebola and the economic crisis we face today is very different than the kind of crisis we faced in 2008, which that crisis, economic crisis was a, a financial driven one. This one's really been a obviously a COVID-driven economic crisis. So there are different situations, but look, I think there are some similarities. One is the one we've just been talking about, uh, the need to make sure that the response is bold and aggressive. Um, you know, I think experts uh, who I've worked with on these epidemic responses uh, like to use the metaphor of a forest fire, because it's one that's very easy for people to relate to, which is you can't just put out part of the forest fire. You can't just leave some embers burning and think, yeah, close enough. Uh, until you really have an overwhelming effort to put the fire out, it continues to spark and reemerge. We kind of saw this in the country over the summer of 2020 when the number of cases dropped off and people were saying, oh, look, it's kind of getting under control. A lot of the experts saying, no, 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 it's going to come back. And that's exactly what we've seen. It's back worse than ever. So I think one thing that shaped our thinking here is the lesson both really from uh, the COVID response and from the, from the uh, Ebola response and from the economic response earlier, 
that we need to go big. We need to be bold. We need to be aggressive. We need to do everything we can do to really get this public health situation under uh, control. The same thing goes on the economic side. Uh, as, as big and as bold, uh, as aggressive as the Recovery Act was in 2009, I think most experts now look back and say it wasn't large enough. It didn't do all the things we needed to do and our recovery uh, lagged as a result. And so yeah, here we've got an effort to really uh, meet the moment, uh, meet the crisis. This is a crisis. I mean, I think there, there's a reason why you and I are having this conversation in two respective rooms over the internet. It's because a public health crisis a year later has impacted virtually every single aspect of our lives. So there's, uh, there should be no doubt that the president-elect and his team are dedicated to an aggressive, strong uh, response to deal with both the economic challenges we face and this ongoing public health disaster. And so what do you say to Republicans who are suddenly rediscovering their concerns about big deficits? Well, look, what I, what I say to them is what I alluded to before, which is the way you're going to have a huge, permanent, escalating deficit in America is the collapse of the U.S. economy. The way you're going to have a huge, permanent, escalating deficit in America is to have Americans be unable to work, to have our businesses closed down, to have what the experts call labor market scarring, just permanent losses that aren't recovered, to shrink the economy. That's how we're going to be in giant, long-run fiscal uh, crisis. And the way you avoid that problem is by making the investments now to beat the virus and to get our economy going again, uh, safely, soundly, smartly. And so I think uh, my response to those people, the Republicans or people in either party who have this concern is that we either do what we need to do now or we face much more grave circumstances in the future. So let's talk about the inauguration. Um, I think the country has a tense weekend ahead with, with all the word of protests taking place in state capitals across the country and here in Washington. We're seeing a, a National Guard presence in the Capitol, unlike anything since, you know, we haven't seen federal troops bivouac there since the Civil War. So how comfortable are you, first of all, about the security precautions for the inauguration, but also what is the image do you, that you think Americans are going to get as they as they see this inauguration having to be held under such tight security, in part because of the COVID-19 epidemic and in part because of what we've seen happen in the last week and a half? Well, first of all, Karen, as you alluded to, uh, this inauguration was always going to be very, very different because of COVID-19. There were never going to be balls or a parade uh, in the traditional sense of the word or giant crowds on the mall uh, because the president-elect determined early on that uh, this uh, inauguration was going to be held in a way that was COVID smart and that uh, minimized the risk that the disease would be spread as inauguration. And so this was always going to be a non-traditional inauguration in that respect. The security issues, uh, the uh, violence in the Capitol on January 6th, uh, has only added another element to that. I have a lot of confidence, I have a great deal of confidence in the ability of the Secret Service and the other assets uh, supporting them to make this inauguration a safe one. Uh, and the extraordinary measures that are being taken, I think are prudent and wise. 
but I think they will lead to a safe inaugural event on January 20th. Uh, in terms of what the public's going to see, I think some of it will look familiar and some of it will look very different. They're going to see Joe Biden, hand on the Bible, standing on in the front of the Capitol with his family around him, taking that oath of office in a tradition, obviously, that goes back to the founding of our republic. Uh, they're going to see him make a speech at 12 noon uh, that calls Americans to service and unity uh, and that lays out what he wants to do as president in the greatest tradition of our country. Uh, but they're going to see some new things. They're going to see the first ever virtual inauguration parade. Uh, they're going to see uh, virtual inaugural balls and all kinds of other virtual celebrations. Uh, and uh, there, I think that uh, our team has done a lot of learning from the virtual Democratic Convention we threw this summer. Uh, people were skeptical on their way into that convention. They, were, they, they thought it might be boring or ineffective, whatever. I heard a lot of people afterwards say that that's a model for how political conventions should work in the future. A lot of the same folks, a lot of the same ideas that made that event a successful one are working on this inauguration to deliver to the American people, a safe, appropriate celebration of this transfer of power. So I know you're not going to go for any any spoilers here, but tell us a little bit about the inaugural address. Um, how does President-elect Biden go about writing a speech this important? Is it done? Uh, what tell tell us what kinds of themes he wants to stress? What's the process like? Well, first of all, I could become the shortest lived chief of staff in White House history if I start to talk about the inaugural address uh, this afternoon, uh, because it's uh, been a closely held secret. He's worked on it uh, virtually the entire transition. He takes time uh, every few days to sit down and think about it, write some thoughts and rewrite some thoughts. So I'm going to he, he's worked hard on keeping it a surprise for the American people. I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize that today. Uh, everyone knows what Joe Biden stands for. Everyone knows what his campaign was about. It was about moving this country forward. It was about bringing this country together. And um, I think uh, people would be surprised if his inaugural address uh, didn't address those themes. Of course it will, but I'm gonna stop there. And again, uh, try not to get fired even before I get started. Well, I, I was in a group of columnists on a call with President-elect Biden about three or four weeks ago. And he expressed concern then that, um, that there were potential landmines. That was his word, being left behind by the Trump administration, that um, you know, a lot of the people with expertise had been fired, that essentially, you know, at the, the Pentagon and in the intelligence agencies and in the Department of Energy, he was concerned basically, you know, because the transition has just been so strange. Yeah. What was going to be left behind for them? T tell me sort of how you guys are feeling about that now. Well, I do think that um, information was shared late, if at all. Our teams had access to the agencies late, sometimes uh, only partial, not full access. And in some sense, um, not to be glib about it, but like the old joke about the light in the refrigerator being off, on or off when the doors closed, we're not really sure what we're going to find when we get in there until we get in there and see what we find. Uh, we do know that, um, as has become public, the efforts to roll out this uh, COVID vaccine have been very um, botched, and uh, details on that were shared late with us. And the, and I still think there's some more things that we need to learn about that. Uh, information sharing at the Pentagon was halted for two weeks, the final two weeks of December, 
under a purported holiday pause. Um, and again, there, it's been very hard to get information about some things. So it's a little hard for me to tell you uh, what I know I don't know, since I don't know what I don't know. Uh, I, I do think there are things we do know, though. We do know that the um, that a lot of the expertise at agencies has been hollowed out. We do know that uh, scientists at agencies have either resigned or, or had their work degraded. Uh, we know that um, uh, that uh, certain key needs haven't been focused on. So I think you know we are going to face a challenge in the early days uh, of the Biden administration to try to rectify those things, get some things back on track. In some cases, it's going to take uh, more time than others. Uh, but I am confident of the team we put together. I mean, the flip side to what we're inheriting is what we're bringing in. And what we're bringing in is, um, well, I think, the most talented cabinet ever. It's uh, indisputably the most diverse cabinet ever, the first cabinet in history that is evenly divided between men and women, the first cabinet in history that is majority non-white. Uh, we've also gone faster than any administration, even with all the complexities of this transition. We have named more people to Senate confirmed positions before Inauguration Day than any president ever. We've named more people to the White House staff than any incoming administration ever. So we are ready to hit the ground running, to find those uh, so-called landmines, to find what's out there, uh, and then to move forward as quickly as possible to address it. So do you think that this has jeopardized the country's security? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think certainly uh, what, I'd, what I'd say is I would feel more comfortable with where we were if we, if we knew more, if we'd had more visibility. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, again, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, we are ready to move very quickly. Uh, I appreciate the fact that even the Republican majority in the Senate, the Republicans still control the Senate until the new senators are sworn in and, and until uh, Senator Harris becomes Vice President Harris. The Republican majority in the Senate has uh, scheduled hearings for some of our key national security nominees, even before President-elect Biden is sworn in. Uh, our Director of National Intelligence, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, our Secretary of Treasury and our Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, and so, you know, we need to move quickly to get the right people in these agencies and to make sure we're keeping this country uh, safe and that we're ready for whatever threats might come. So um, one thing that that has been remarked upon a lot is the fact that, that President-elect Biden has a personal relationship with Mitch McConnell. Have they been speaking lately? How often? What are those conversations like? Well, I think the president likes to make it very clear that he's going to keep his conversations with Leader McConnell uh, private, uh, as he does his conversations with Leader Schumer and Pelosi and Speaker Pelosi and others. Uh, one reason why he has a good relationship with leaders on Capitol Hill is that they can tell him things and he doesn't repeat them to the press. Uh, they have. Uh, he certainly has had frequent contact with, uh, with uh, Senator McConnell uh, and obviously Senator Schumer uh, about the need to get our people confirmed about the need to move forward on these key priorities. And uh, you know those conversations are always uh, polite and straightforward. Look, Joe Biden is a progressive Democrat. Mitch McConnell's a conservative Republican. There are many things they are going to disagree on, but I think they both are determined to find places where they can work together. I, I know that the president-elect was uh, moved by uh, Senator McConnell's speech on the floor uh, just before the certification vote of the electoral results. I know he um, has been grateful for the help that Senator McConnell has given to get our nominees, key nominees hearings, while he and the Republicans still run the Senate. So I don't want to suggest that Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell are gonna see eye to eye on tax policy or healthcare reform or a lot of things. There are gonna be disagreements. These are two men who have very different philosophies. But I do think 
that there are areas where they can work together. And I do think what I can tell you is there's going to be open and candid uh, communication. I think one thing that uh, Joe Biden has said very often is the reason he has a, a strong relationship with Senator McConnell and other Republicans, too, is that he tells them what he thinks. Uh, he listens to them and they just have candid conversations. And I think that kind of engagement is very, very important. There'll be plenty of things to disagree on, uh, but there hopefully there'll be some areas where we can work together. You know, President-elect Biden pointed to, and again, in this last conversation I had with him, which was right around Christmas, he pointed to the stimulus package that had passed then. And it had really begun with a small bipartisan group of senators who sort of came to a consensus and then they sort of worked out from yeah. the middle. As you guys are, are looking at this much bigger, more ambitious, and as you've argued, more urgent package, um, are you seeing any signs of that? Who should we be keeping an eye on in terms of whether this thing is gonna get the traction that it needs to move quickly? Well, I, look, I do think that that bipartisan group uh, that played a role in getting that package rolling in December, they are important senators, important Democratic and Republican senators. Uh, it'd be great to see them get engaged in that. We've been we've started the process today of briefing their offices on the package. Um, we're going to continue to talk to every member of the House and Senate and try to build bipartisan support for it. Uh, you know, as I said before, Karen. Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of specifics here. It's a very large package and I'm sure people will debate uh, specifics. They'll debate how much of this do you need or how much of that or why is this in or why isn't that in? But I think the big pieces of it, the big concepts here that we need to fix the COVID response, that we need to make sure that state and local governments can keep people on the job as part of that response, that Americans are hurting badly in terms of their incomes, their ability to pay their bills, their ability to stay in their homes, that those things should be uh, bipartisan observations and shouldn't really run along ideological lines. Now, look, once there's agreement that those are the needs, obviously there's going to be a lot of debate about the size, the scope, all the different elements. And you know, I've worked on Capitol Hill for a long time. As you've noted, President-elect uh, served on Capitol Hill for a long time. He understands the legislative process uh, you know, is, uh, is a mix master of views and inputs and whatnot. And what the president puts in at the front end doesn't necessarily come out that way at the back end. Of course, that's true. But I think it's important um, just to take a step back and say that Joe Biden's done his job in this process, which is thoughtfully assemble uh, a, a package that has specificity and key elements, go to the country, make his case for it, put it before the Congress uh, in a thoughtful way. Uh, Congress is going to have its say now. I mean, I, you know, I think that's just the way this process should work. And it doesn't mean we get what we want exactly the way we want it. That's never the way this process works, but it does mean that we are going to be active, uh, actively engaged in the process, trying to shape the process uh, and trying to work with people in both parties to get results for the American people. La last thing I'll say is, look, we have a 50-50 Senate. We have a very closely divided but Democratic House. Uh, I think the voters were sending a message in November. That message was that they want people in both parties to work together on matters of common concern. And this COVID crisis, this economic crisis should be matters of common concern. Uh, people in both parties should work together to try to solve those problems. And 
in the little bit of time that we have left, I, I do want to re return to impeachment because there are two reasons for impeachment spelled out in the Constitution. One is to remove a president from office, which will be sort of irrelevant by the time the trial starts in the Senate because Donald Trump will be out of office. But the other reason is to bar him from ever running for office again. Should Donald Trump be prevented from running for office again? Well, that's a decision the Senate's going to make. And uh, I don't have a vote on that. And Joe Biden doesn't have a vote on that. Uh, what I can tell you is that, you know, uh, the, the Senate has to go through this process in the constitutional way. They have to make that decision. Obviously, it would take uh, a majority, uh, an extraordinary majority, a super majority, including members of both parties to make that judgment. Uh, and I don't think those senators need my input on that. And And should Donald Trump have access to all the benefits that go along with being a former president, whether it's, you know, the, the pension, the, the other types of support that ex-presidents get. Well, yeah, that's a decision Congress is going to make. I mean, look, I know everyone wants to hear us talk about Donald Trump. Uh, the president is being, uh, is going to be on trial before the Senate. That's going to be their business to sort out. Uh, you know, our focus is on trying to get these things done for the country. It's on uh, trying to get this emergency package passed. It's on trying to move forward, get our people in place, take control of the government, uh, move the country forward. Uh, we're going to do our jobs. We're going to let the Senate do its job. Well, Ron, thank you so much for being with us today. As I said, a, a, a moment when you have so, so much going on. Really, we appreciate it. And we hope we'll see you back here at Post Live soon. I hope so, too. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. And that is all the time we have today. Um, please join us next week as we cover Joe Biden's inaugural. We'll also continue our coverage of the coronavirus next Friday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, when our guest will be Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. And thank you so much for being with us today. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.